Please note, if you're listening to this, you must be 18 years of age or older. This podcast contains adult themes and may include descriptions that listeners could find offensive. Thank you. What one does when faced with truth is more difficult than you'd think. Diana Prince. Welcome to the Kinky Nerdy Polly Podcast. This is episode four. Hello again, it's G from the future, or from the past. It's all a little bit wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. I just want to let our listeners know that in this episode, both M and myself thoroughly analyzed the movie Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman. So, this episode contains spoilers for that movie. I would highly recommend you go and watch the movie so you have a better understanding of our discussion. Alright, so do we want to talk about this, or do we just want to switch how we're using the terminology? I think we should just bring it up a little bit briefly. Okay. So we decided we're not going to change the name from poly to polyamorous just because it's kind of like this easy flow of... It, It scans better. Yeah, it scans better. Kinky, nerdy, poly. Yeah. But we do want to just clarify that when we're talking about poly there, we're meaning polyamorous, and we're going to try our best to use the full polyamorous when we're actually, yeah. you know, recording. Mm-hmm. And that is to give space to the Polynesian community who might also be using poly yes. as an identifier. So we did want to make that small change here. Okay. Do we also want to talk about, like... Part of the reason why this happened was, like, I'm so disconnected from the online poly If you want to talk about that, that's fine. Okay. Just whatever I just said, that was good enough for me to say, so... <laughs> just clip me back in. Okay. What? <laughs> you can talk about... Look, I've been... Okay. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I have debated that a lot with people. Okay. And not as a way to take the term from people who are Polynesian who are using poly Mm -hmm. as a shorthand, but just because I think people are misunderstanding what the actual debate is. And so it gets kind of watered down to cultural appropriation. Yeah. But from what I've come to understand through my own research and talking to people who use the term uh, or who might use the term, as well as people who have said, you know, from the Polynesian community have said, like, I don't use that term poly to refer to myself. But, you know, it has been remarked upon by people in the Polynesian community that, you know, they don't really care that the polyamorous community uses poly as a shorthand. It's just that when they're searching online, you know, it makes it difficult, makes it difficult to find their people. If They're like poly people or Mm -hmm. like, you know. Uh, But again, I feel like if you're searching for this, if you're trying to search for this podcast, you're probably going to use the there's little chance of of overlap. Yeah. Unless you are a kinky and nerdy polynesian person (laughs) uh which is also possible and you might also be a kinky nerdy polynesian polyamorous person yes so but i feel like there is little chance of overlap in this particular online space all right do you want to get into the meat of this yes let's get started all right i'm g i'm m and this is the fourth episode of the kmp podcast where we're going to talk about professor marston and the wonder woman this is a movie that actually m made me watch not too long ago and i immensely enjoyed it and we rewatched it last night so we'd have like the most 
fresh fresh impression right uh, as we talked about it so for those of you who don't know professor marston the wonder woman is specifically about dr william moulton marston who helped to create the lie detector and was also the creator of wonder woman and in particular this movie explores his relationship to his wife elizabeth halloway marston and the third member of their triad. Uh, triad olive olive burn olive burn and for our listeners who don't know a triad merely refers to a polyamorous group of three people that are all connected to each other with romantic relationships right so there's relationships between all of them as opposed to like an open v is what i've heard it called yeah when it's one person who has two partners yes. but those partners aren't involved with each other correct in this situation the triad is that all of the people are involved with each other yes i think specifically this would be called a closed triad because they're only having relationships with each other and modern day poly you probably encounter some open triads which are close relationships between these three people but they are also allowed to have other relationships outside have other romantic relationships outside the triad romantic or sexual or yeah. whatever kind of relationship yeah although you know when we were looking up a little bit more about this g you found that there might have also been a fourth person that sometimes did yes so there is a a blog which goes into some detail about sort of the history behind the movie part of the reason why i was looking into this blog was because i stumbled across an article with from the doc the granddaughter of dr marston claimed that this uh, romantic and sexual relationship between Elizabeth and Olive did not exist. Yeah, which I thought was, you know, again, it's it's a valid thing that might pop up. And maybe she just didn't really know about it. And we can discuss maybe reasons why. Yes. But it seems it's from every other, all the other research that I've done, I, it's pretty clear that there was some kind of relationship between the three of them. Yes. It seems, from what I can tell, they're... It was fairly well known that Marston was having relationships with both women. And considering the fact that Elizabeth and Olive lived with each other 40 years past Marston's death, uh, William's death, it seems pretty clear that there was a deep emotional connection between them. I think that's fairly hard to deny that you can live with somebody for 40 years and not have a deep emotional connection with mm -hmm. them. But also there are some... Apparently, there are some minutes from meetings of William Marston's, like, feminist aunt, and where Marston would talk about his, his love unit, <laughs> which referred to, and there are specific nicknames which he assigned to the various women in his love unit, but it's not, it's never explicitly stated who is it, it, there's never a name associated with a nickname, but it seems fairly clear from the minutes of these meetings that there was some sort of sexual relationships going on. Right. And I think that it's something that we encounter throughout, you know, when we're looking at history is that a lot of people want to reject the notion that there was any kind of gay relationships going on. So especially between Elizabeth and yeah. Olive, there is a lot of resistance. Yeah, that's a lot of pushback there for admitting that there was probably a relationship between them. Somewhat similar to how a lot of historians still say that Eleanor Roosevelt was not in a, was not in a lesbian relationship 
with that reporter. Uh, what was her, what was the reporter's name? Oh, I forget. You always tell me this, though. You've brought this up like a couple times now. Yeah. I feel like I should know it. Hold on. Uh, let me look it up. Who is it again? Eleanor Roosevelt and her reporter. Eleanor Roosevelt and reporter. Uh, let's see. Lorena Hickok. That sounds right. Yep, Lorena Hickok. And, you know, we have these these letters that Lorena kept where, you know, it, it talks about how she wants to passionately embrace Eleanor. <laughs> and there's like still historians who are like, well, <laughs> people just spoke different, <laughs> spoke differently back then. This may have been more common usage. And I was like, yeah, may have been different. There may have been different speaking patterns, but passionately embrace like and you know talking about how much they miss each other like it seems fairly obvious from these letters that they were in some form of relationship so yeah it's always interesting how the like there's the most pushback against trying to determine if people were in lesbian relationships Mm -hmm. because i feel like it's i could be wrong here but i feel like it's fairly okay to try to sort of hypothesize whether somebody was in a gay relationship and this is just sort of my experience from what I've like read online and various articles. But there's a lot more pushback when you try to say, I suspect these people were in a lesbian relationship. Right. There's a lot of pushback. Yep. Which is interesting that those two are, are treated differently. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, I think that as we saw in the movie, you know, something that's brought up a lot in Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman is that, you know, lesbianism or homosexuality in general is like viewed uh, as a mental illness it's viewed as a mental illness it's definitely um you know like still you know people are obviously facing a lot of discrimination Mm -hmm. there's a lot of stigma yeah so it doesn't yeah it doesn't surprise me that there would be resistance to accepting that elizabeth and olive had yeah some sort of relationship so another term that i want to i want to introduce to our to our listeners is olive is what modern day poly people would call a unicorn which is specifically so william marston and elizabeth so william and elizabeth were already in a prior relationship they were married to each other and then the movie portrays them both becoming interested in olive this is olive would nowadays be called a unicorn which is somebody who is romantically and sexually interested in both people and i'd also like to to talk to my listeners for just a second. It is very common for married couples to try to explore, who are exploring polyamory for the first time, to go what is called unicorn hunting. Even non-married couples, just like yeah. committed couples. Yeah, where they're looking for somebody to be invested in both of them. I would highly, highly recommend to our listeners that you don't do this, because you are essentially already prescribed a role and you're trying to fit somebody into that role if this kind of relationship develops as it does in this movie naturally naturally that's great that's fine but i am of the opinion that you should never go out unicorn hunting specifically yeah and i just want to i agree with that and i just want to extend that to i don't think that you should look i mean it doesn't matter if you're in a really in a couple already you know relationship if you're going to be looking for someone to meet a very specific role and then try to force that person into it that's just never a good thing yes so Um, probably like you know 
don't try to force people into roles. Yeah. I've also heard recently that a a dragon is a male version of a unicorn. I love this term. I didn't know it before you put it in our show notes, G. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, I love it now I so much. And as a more masculinely aligned person, you know, and as a trans guy, I think, like, now I can be like, oh, man, I could be a dragon. That's awesome. I thought unicorn was kind of gender neutral, so I thought they used it for both female-identified feminine folks and male-identified masculine folks. Mm-hmm. But I kind of like even that there's this other option that you can have be a unicorn or a dragon. So I've definitely used unicorn to refer to men before, but I think a vast majority of the time, when you see a couple trying to do unicorn hunting, they're usually always specifically looking for a woman. Right. They are not looking to add a a man to the relationship. I, can I comment on this just from being on the receiving end of this? Yeah. Because I was on Tinder very briefly. Mm-hmm. And I don't really, I don't know why I was on Tinder. Okay. Because it tends to be for people to hook up. Yeah. But, you know, there are people who are looking for dating there. Yeah. And there are even asexual people on there. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, maybe this will be a good thing. Yeah. And there was a couple that reached out to me. Yes. Um, actually, a couple couples. All right. Uh, but one that I actually, like, decided to have a conversation with. And it was interesting because, you know, like, my profile at the time was before I started medically transitioning. Mm-hmm. And I was still more going by they, them in general and more agender and yeah. less on the masculine side. But, you know, so, like, my photos were still pre- presenting me kind of what people would perceive as being feminine. Yeah. And as soon as I would start the conversation with them and they would realize that I was trans, I mean, it kind of went two ways. Either, like, they were like, oh, no, we we want, like, a cis woman mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. Shitty. Yeah. But again, they're looking for somebody they're to fit into, into a, a very specific role. But then also the other side of this was being fetishized. Like, oh, okay. like, you know, that's kind of different. The novelty of it, right? That's kind of hot. Yeah. So I did have some couples that also reacted in that way. In this specific couple that I pursued a little bit more in mm-hmm. terms of talking to them, I was like, well, I mean, as long as it's consensual, you know, fetish, fetishization, maybe. But then I was like, you know, looking back on it, I'm like, that was a bad idea. <laughs> it, we, I never went through with it. But it felt less shitty than when they were just like, no, we only want cis women. Yeah. So. So I think that's it for the notes that I took before I watched the movie. So. Stuff that we noticed while watching the movie. Yeah, can I open this up with talking about disc theory? Yeah. Yeah, so one of the draws for me in this movie was getting to learn a little bit about disc theory, which is Professor Marston's theory. And Professor Marston was a psychologist, so even though he, you know, wrote the Wonder Woman comics, he also was a psychologist and did research, published books. And in his book that he published in 1928 called Emotions of Normal People, he illustrates emotions using four behavior types and this is disc so d is dominance i is inducement s is submission and c is compliance and basically what he's trying to argue with this is that people want to submit to a loving authority that they're very happy when they can submit to a loving authority Mm -hmm. and that submission is very different from compliance yeah compliance is just going along with it but they kind of feel forced into it they don't really want to do the thing so when people are submitting to an authority and they don't necessarily like really want to go along with what the authority is saying, we get kind of like an unhappiness or kind of like a tension. And he claims, you know, that we can use inducement to persuade people to think, you know, like this is their idea. Mm-hmm. They want to go along with it. And so we like using this sort of inducement. And I like that, you know, he 
he kind of clarifies that inducement is not necessarily like negative, like this manipulative, which we often think like that that's automatically manipulative. Um, But sometimes it's like when I think about like loving relationships and authority, it's like parents, you know, trying to teach their kids like you need to brush your teeth. Right. You needed. Yeah, exactly. And there's a difference between forcing a kid to comply to brush their teeth and convincing them that it's good for them to brush their teeth. Right. So I really like this theory. And I think that as a psychological theory, like mostly it's not used today. Mm -hmm. But I think that it can really be applied to power exchange dynamics in the kink community and maybe even outside of power dynamics. I mean, I feel like there is, no matter where you go in life, there are inherent power dynamics at play. Of course. So I feel like this is more useful as a sociological theory than as a psychological theory. Well, and I think like he was trying to... He was trying to propose, like, how people are using certain personality traits through these four behavior types. Mm-hmm. And I think where it falls short psychologically is that there's, like, obviously a lot outside of these yes. behavior types that determine, like, why we're behaving the way we do. Yeah, this is not a complete theory of emotion or a complete theory of mind. Right. But I think I think in terms of the actual psychological workings of kink, though... Yeah, that's where I think that this could maybe maintain its psychology. I think that there are, obviously there's a lot of reasons why people do kink. Yes, but especially for the power exchange type of thing, from what I've observed in the kink community, and like I entered the kink community as a submissive, and now I'm a switch, and I I actually top a fair bit. But you know, like submissives, if they, depends on what type of submissive, of course, there's lots of variety. But I feel like they are like really happy when they're like maybe not like that. They're, it's their idea. Like, what mm-hmm. they're doing. But there is, like, I don't know how to explain it. Whereas, like, it's it's different from, like, complying, just going along with it. Yes. Not necessarily, like, not being forced into, because there's definitely submissives who like to do things that they are forced into. Uh, forced being, again, like, consensually non-consensual. Yeah. Or something of the sort. We should really do an episode on that. We will do an episode for sure on that. But I think what I'm saying here is that, like, especially with, like, 24-7 <laughs> power exchange... Okay. Relationships that, like, involve a lot of those daily life type of things. I know from my experience as a submissive, when I was in those types of relationships and I was just going along with things, wasn't very meaningful to me. It didn't really, like, hit the right buttons for me in the relationship. Yeah. Whereas when it was really getting into my psyche, my emotions. So I feel like there's a difference between... There's a difference between, like, going along with the power dynamic and believing in the power dynamic. Right, yes. I, I feel like is the way I would I would describe it. Yeah. You know, you you can go along with the dynamic and you, you can still get some enjoyment out of it. Sure. But if you, if you really believe in the dynamic. Right. And I think, you know, that that's, you can definitely believe in the dynamic, whether it's a short dynamic or just in a scene or whether it's 24 7 but i just brought up that kind of context because that's where i see a lot of submissives going into more of the compliance realm yeah because if you're doing it day in and day out easy to it lose becomes the, a chore it becomes a chore it becomes yes. a chore real fast yes so it's i think in those relationships you know you have to be careful about what are you really trying to convey and like how are you gonna both believe in it like mm-hmm. you're saying and not just go along with it yeah so anyway that's disc theory yeah yeah, so you, so very early on in the movie, after Professor Marsh, uh, William expressed a lot of interest in, in Olive, there's a point where you were kind of confused about why Elizabeth was acting the way she was. Yeah. Because at first she says, you know, like Professor Marston is kind of like essentially asking her, like, would you be okay 
if I, like, had sex with this other woman. Yes. And, like, she's like, who am I to, like, say what you can and can't do? Like, I'm your wife. I'm not your jailer, is what she says. And then Olive, of course, comes to the office. You know, she's there. She's meeting Elizabeth. And then all of a sudden, Elizabeth is like, by the way, don't fuck my husband. Yes. If you do, I'm going to kill you. Yes. So that seems like she really changed. And then she starts like kind of degrading Olive. Yeah. Which you, I feel like you had a lot more trouble comprehending than I did. Yeah. I don't know why Uh, I had such a hard time with that. Because I felt like it was very much sort of in character with her. Because she's a very, she's a very strong woman in a time which doesn't really want women to be strong. And, you know, there's a difference between being open to your husband, being open to your partner having sex versus talking to the person who might who who might upset your relationship and change the hierarchy of the relationship. I think I want to skip ahead in our notes a little bit because I think this is a good point to point out that Elizabeth in this movie is portrayed as being super dominant. In fact, she is so dominant, she cannot comprehend why people would enjoy submitting. Yeah, I would say that's pretty accurate. Like, when you phrased it in that way, I kind of had to write it down because I was like, oh, that's a really good conclusion. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the scene we're specifically referring to is when uh, Olive is being tied up for the first time at the sort of proto-rope workshop. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not proto-rope. It is rope. It just happened a while ago, so it's probably not taught the same way as it is now. Um, yeah, it seemed more of like a performance Yeah, than it was a, an actual class. And at first, Elizabeth is very much against, she doesn't want to be tied up. And she, and when Olive volunteers to be tied up, she's like, what the fuck? How can you let them do this to you? And she actually storms out of the room. And she's eventually sort of coaxed back in by William. But she, you know, she like talks to Olive and is like, are you certain you want this? Are you sure you want this? And as Olive keeps on, you know, saying, yes, yes, I do want this. I do want this. She eventually sort of starts doing it, but she still doesn't. She is so dominant. She does not understand why somebody would want this because she is she's had to be so dominant in her life because that's the only way that she could get all the things that she's gotten. And I think a little bit of it, too, might have been like, well, women shouldn't be submissive. And I feel like a little bit of it was that that, too, because like she's had to assert her position in society yeah. And so she's also like, you know, Olive's a woman and, you know, like she she doesn't need to submit to anyone. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a little bit of that, too. Let's, let's see. Is there anything else on the front? Oh, we talked a little bit about this paddling. Oh, yeah. The paddling. All right. So there's a point where William and Elizabeth sneak into the sorority so they can watch an initiation rite, which is the... The, the sisters of the sorority treat the pledges like babies, mm-hmm. and the babies are are punished with paddling when they violate some rule. So, yeah, so gee, you kind of thought that this practice started in this setting. Yeah. So I I had been previously told that. Uh, so I watched a movie with one of my partners, T, and we watched the movie Dazed and Confused. And I was super surprised at how prevalent paddling was in that movie. And she told me, it's like, oh, this is, this is like something that started in like fraternity and in, in Greek life. And it's why, 
her current her current leather family is modeled the way it is after a uh, after a fraternity. Yeah, so I kind of knew that paddling didn't start there. I knew that it was mm-hmm. kind of been used for a lot longer. That being said, it's you know possible that some people who are in the kink scene who do paddling might take it from that sort of practice. Maybe that's what they draw on as their imagery. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was actually used as a punishment in schools, you know, yeah. for a long time historically in the United States and further back too. So, you know, this practice of paddling is not necessarily unique to frats and sororities. Yeah. I guess the, the corporal punishment I think of when I think of old school corporal punishment is either wrapping your knuckles with a ruler or caning in, like, the British school system. Right. So paddling is sort of like the U.S. equivalent. Okay. And, like, that, I feel like, you know, was adopted by sororities. So sororities sort of adopted that. And then maybe there are some people in the kink community who have adopted it from sororities, but, you know, other people who probably adopted it from, you know, school, this historical use. Do you think so? Like, I I feel like I'm fairly fairly good with sort of historical facts and i wasn't aware of this whole paddling thing See, i was highly aware of it and i don't know maybe it's just a a difference in what we tend to care about in in history yeah actually it doesn't surprise me that i would happen to know this but when i think of paddling my the first thing that comes to mind is not sororities yeah so actually it took me until college to like start to piece together that part okay also you have to understand that there's a lot of other things that can, can be used for paddling too like the back of a hairbrush is also typically used in that practice. Yes. So. So many, so many pervertibles out there. There's a lot of pervertibles, yeah. I also have a note here about being a spectator versus being a participant because okay. this happens right after the paddling scene. So Professor Marston is asking Olive, like, how did you feel, right, during this experience? And Olive's kind of resistant to reply. And then Elizabeth jumps in, like, no, like, we're going to ask you the questions now. Like, how did you feel watching it? Yes. And he explains, you know, he was excited and he was kind of like nervous and repulsed and aroused. aroused. And he then says, like, but it's not any good to know what my feelings are because I wasn't an active participant in it. Yes. So we need to know, you know, what Olive felt being an active participant. Yeah. And eventually, uh, you know, I think Olive says, like, she keeps some things to herself. Yes. So is there a difference, you know, with, with being a spectator versus being a participant? And I thought that this was related a little bit to the kink community in terms of, like, being a voyeur. Yeah. That's what my mind went to. Are the things that we get out of kink different being a voyeur and being a participant? Hmm. So I feel like when I was starting off in the kink scene, I was I was very voyeuristic just because... I didn't even know like half the shit was possible or that anybody did it. So, you know, I, I was just, I wanted to watch everything because it was all, it was all new to me. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, the, I, I watched a tickling scene, even though I'm not, I'm not that into tickling. Uh, I watched a floggings. I watched, you know, I watched fireplay. I watched, I, I watched everything I could just because it was all new to me and it was all, visually exciting Mm -hmm. i definitely feel like as i've as i've progressed as i've gotten more adjusted to the to the kink scene like my voyeuristic tendencies have gone down mostly because i haven't i haven't even bothered going to my local kink club in like three to four months at this point (laughs) so 
I definitely think it's going to depend on the person. Like, I definitely know that there are people who are like dedicated voyeurs. I want to say something mean right now. Okay, uh, you can always edit it out. There's always that one guy in the corner jacking off. Yeah, that can make some people uncomfortable. Yeah, there's always that one guy in the corner looking at the whole room and jacking off. Yep. And you just kind of got to accept that if you're going to a kink club. Right. I mean, there are some kink clubs I know that prohibit that. Okay. And maybe there should be times when those things are allowed versus not allowed. Or maybe yeah. some events can allow it and some don't. And because I know some people are sensitive to seeing that. Mm-hmm. But I think to a, a certain degree, maybe people aren't like actively, you know, jerking off or whatever, but they're like still watching you. And you have to like, yeah. you kind of agree when you go into a king club, if you're going to do a scene, that people could be observing you and yeah, so there's enjoying this it. unofficial contract that Part of the reason why you do a scene in a public space is so that other people can watch. Mm-hmm. Though, obviously, like, there might be reasons such as, like, a kink space is the only place that I can do this. Like, right. I imagine it's fairly hard to do a single tail scene in your home. Right, unless you have a nice big basement or something. Yeah. And even though it's got to be fairly tall ceilings. Well, no, it depends on the type of single tail because actually I just had a single tail. I just got single tailed not too long ago in somebody's apartment. No. So, like there are small single whips. There are small whips. Yes. And they are single tail. Maybe if you're going to be doing one of those ones like 30 feet long or I'm exaggerating. Yeah. But but if you want to like use those big bull whips, right. like you got to you got to go to a venue of some sort. But again, probably part of the reason why you're using that big bull whip is you want you want the pizzazz, the the showmanship of like, look at me, I, I, I'm, I've trained enough to know how to use this and not do lots of damage to my bottom. <laughs> it's very impressive. I kind of want to learn. It, I, I've tried a couple times. It just takes too much dedication. Like, part of the reason why single tail tops are the way they are is because they essentially do like practice every single day. And so it's like, oh, I don't, I don't want to be just like a one-trick pony. Right. Uh, so I guess I just want to answer my own question about being a spectator versus okay. being a participant. I think that to some degree, maybe it's like if you, people have higher degrees of empathy, maybe because they're feeling what the other person is feeling. So sometimes I can watch a scene and get all those same emotions and feelings just from watching. Okay even though I'm not necessarily having the physical sensation of what's going on. And maybe I'm not having the same level of intimacy because I'm not actually interacting with the other person. But that being said, I think they are actually pretty similar for some people. Yeah. And sometimes I don't want to be a participant. Sometimes there's like feelings that I get from being a spectator, a voyeur that is that are nice. For instance, not having to endure that pain. It's quite a nice feeling sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> So do you want to go on to the next point? Yeah. So so this is a topic that's actually kind of near and dear to my heart. I've I've talked to M before about this this topic, which is people have complicated legacies. So Olive is actually descended from two radical feminists. The way the movie portrays it is like they are the most well-known feminists who are put who are trying to push for suffrage and they left her to be raised by by nuns. Yep. Who are probably at this point like the most conservative group of women in this <laughs> in the country. 
So there is this complicated legacy where these two women who are pushing the movement forward, trying to get equal rights for women, trying to get the vote for women, and, and they do move the needle on that. And on the other hand, they, they didn't, they didn't try to raise their daughter to be a self, to be an empowered woman. They left her to be raised by nuns, which they had to know would have been a traditional upbringing. And yeah, not only that, but remember later in the film, and I think that I've kind of looked at this too, is like the because of Olive becoming involved in a polyamorous situation, her feminist aunt actually distanced herself even more yes. from her because she didn't want that to look poorly on the movement Yes, for women's rights. So I think that's pretty... And I think... This applies, this applies beyond the movie. There are a lot, people are complex, and they leave behind complicated legacies. So getting back to polyamory. Yes. There's a point in which Elizabeth, you know, they all finally realize, you know, they all really love each other. Mm-hmm. And then Elizabeth is asking Professor Marston, uh, William, do you think it's possible to love two people at the same time? Yes. And she asks him that. And he absolutely thinks it is possible. And she feels it's not possible, not because she doesn't love them, but because society won't let this happen. Yes. The world is effectively against them, so it's not possible. And to a certain extent, she's correct. The world will not allow this kind of relationship to happen. The United States spent you know, a significant amount of time trying to stamp out polygamy among Mormons. And uh, to the point where the Mormons left the United States to try to form their own territory which they could govern themselves, and then the United States <laughs> proceeded to encircle them. <laughs> and they eventually became a state in the United States, so they had to deal with that problem again. Now obviously I'm not equating the the more the Mormon polygamy with modern day polyamory, but I think it does show that there is cultural resistance in the United States to the idea that that people can openly have more than one sexual or, or romantic partner and yeah. or a romantic partner. There's definitely and I say and I say openly because as I say openly because there is an there is this norm of you're not allowed to do this, but as long as you keep things on the on the sly, mm-hmm. it's okay. Like we'll just wink at each other and it's like, oh yeah, you're you're married to to one person. Wink. <laughs> it's like, oh yes, you're you're uh, staying late in the city, working with your secretary. Wink. <laughs> so there is acknowledgement. There, on one hand, there is acknowledgement that these kinds of relationships do happen, and on the other hand, there is the public facing norm that cannot be broken. Absolutely. Because you know, it's it's hard to deny that these various relationships that were considered taboo at the time still happened. Like, we're fairly certain that Olive, Elizabeth, and Marston were in a relationship with each other. We're fairly certain there are lots of notable figures who were fairly certain that they were in a homosexual relationship with each other at this point. But they had to keep things... They had to keep things on the down low. They had to... Yep. Use like a... Yeah. They they could never openly acknowledge the kind of relationship they had. It's just these two guys just lived together for 40 years, and when one of them died, he willed his estate over to the other one. Mm-hmm. 
and it's fairly obvious that there's some sort of relationship there. Right. And it's it's fairly easy to speculate there's probably a homosexual relationship because neither as far as we can tell neither of these men had a re- had any sort of like dating life outside, but you know, we can't say we can't say with any certainty because, you know, they had to keep these things private. Yeah, so an example of that from the movie, from the film, was that, like, Olive had to pretend to be, like, a... She had to pretend to be a widower. A widower, or a... No, a widow. A widower is the male version. Okay, a widow, then. Yeah, she had to pretend to be a widow. I'm never sure which one is which. I'm just like, just one word for both of them is fine. (laughs) We can maybe make a new one. Um, A widowee. Well, then you add wee to widow. And then it's which, kind of fun, right? Um, well, it's not, it's not a fun concept. No, so it's I'm not. I'm not sure if you so want to add... you don't add, like that one. No, I don't, I don't think you should add wee to widow. So, okay, a widow. How about that? Because that's kind of sad. How about a widow? That's kind of a dour sound. Widow? Well, whatever we're going to call it. Um, okay. Or I think you also said that sometimes she... Because uh, you were reading some more stuff, maybe pretend to be like a servant. Yeah, to be like a domestic servant, right. sort of like a live-in nanny, essentially. Right. And so she did have to put on a a bit of a... A facade. A, yeah, facade. And I do want to note, there is like a big confrontation. So eventually, in the movie, they are found out. As far as we can tell from from various historical sources, they were not found out in 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 real life, but... In the movie, they are they are found out by their neighbor, and a little bit of a contrived scene, in my opinion, but still it happens, and there's a confrontation between them and another family that lives on, the, on their street. And I think it's important to note that part of the reason why they're able to do this kind of thing is because their living arrangement was not unique, because the other family they were confronting also had a household that involved one man and two women, though obviously they were not in a polyamorous relationship. Yeah, because they were they considered the the Marston family to be freaks, freaks, perverts. And perverts. Right. Uh, and this was back in the day when, like, you know, nowadays, like, you call somebody a pervert in the king scene, they're like, "Fuck yeah, I'm a pervert." And I guess we need to add a cursing. <laughs> Do we need to have a cursing? A warning? Yeah. No, I think, like, I do mention in the beginning that, like, there is going to be content that people might be uncomfortable with. Okay. I think cursing, I feel like, is encompassed in, like, hey. 18 over only, please. Yeah. All right. So, you know, nowadays, like, you can, you can, if you call somebody pervert in the king scene, they're like, fuck yeah, I'm pervy. But, you know, back in the 19, you know, 30s and 40s, like, that was a huge insult. To be labeled a pervert. Right. You know, there's this linguistic drift that is hard to sort of portray, I think, in these kinds of movies. Like, how how offensive this term used to be back then. So, I have a small criticism of this movie at this point. Uh, so, during this fight, uh, this confrontation between these two families, there's a point where where Dr. Marston says... Let's, let me look at the exact line. Oh, wait, no, this is that's not during the fight. That he says that. It's not? No. When does he say it? Because I'm fairly certain like he was talking to the other guy at that point. No, it was uh, not with the couple. It was with the partner of Olive. Yeah, because we forgot to mention that Olive was seeing that gentleman. What? Wait, are you talking about this line? Yeah, you can't. Yeah, this is when Olive and, the, and Olive's partner, fiancé now, 
are sitting on the... Oh. This is right after this. That's why I have this note. And then the... Oh, it's the picnic. It's the weird picnic The weird scene. picnic. And Olive's fiancé. So just to fill everybody in, maybe we should do like a spoilers at the beginning too, but Olive is also seeing someone outside of this, outside of these two people at this point, besides Elizabeth and William. This is before they start their their sexual relationship, I believe. No. They've actually started their sexual yes, relationship. Yes, they have started their sexual relationship at this point. Right. And Olive has not yet told her fiancé. Fiance. And her fiancé knows something's going on. Yeah. So he, you know, tells Elizabeth especially, you know, to stop corrupting Olive with ideas. Yes. And Professor Marston responds with, you can't corrupt people with ideas. And he also comments, like, ignorance corrupts. Yes. This is an idea that I disagree with, to put it mildly. The idea that, you know, all knowledge is good, or all ideas are good, I think is wrongheaded, because there are definitely ideologies, malevolent ideologies, that are trying to put certain ideas into your head, and are trying to convert you to their ideology. The uh, the ones I think I mentioned while we were watching the movie and we were talking about this were, were ideologies such as like fascism or the incel community are both like trying to implant certain ideas about how to view the world. And I think those ideas are very corrupting, as we've seen. And so this is an idea I sort of fundamentally disagree with that sort of all ideas are good. And that ideas can't corrupt a person because, you know, for the most part, I think, uh, you know, one could argue that the personality of a person is made up of like their memories and their ideology and, you know, how those interact with each other. And if you introduce new ideas, that changes how that person is going to behave in the future. Yeah, for sure. Um, do you want to talk about the what do I long for game? Yeah, well, so I was hoping that we would transition from this to this by yeah. kind of a... Uh... Talking about this picnic, right? Okay. That way we could give background about what's going on. Okay. Okay, so they've all love each other. They're all, like, now have this sexual relationship has started. They're Olive all has... deep into NRE. Yeah, uh, very... For our listeners, NRE is a acronym for New Relationship Energy. So they're together. Olive still hasn't told her fiancé. Now she's with her fiancé and Elizabeth and William. They're all at this awkward picnic. And Olive says, you know, in my sorority, we play this game called What Do I Long For? Where the other person guesses what you long for. And uh, we thought this was kind of weird, but I think uh, we should play around. Oh, you want to play around? Yeah, we should play around. What do I long for, G? I think I know what you long for. I think you long for a better humanity. Aww. I think you truly wish that humans would treat each other better and that it would be a better world for it. That's cute. I'm very touched. A am I wrong or? No, that's definitely, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, Em. Yes, G. What do I long for? All right, mine is not as sappy. <laughs> okay. Maybe not as sappy. Not as sappy, but I was thinking about how you were looking at that D&D role-playing, like the yeah. town. Yes. Kickstarter. And I was like, that's what G longs for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is It is very impractical, but I really want it. 
All right, so now we've played this awkward game. So they also play this in the uh, in the movie, and that's what leads to the confrontation where Olive's fiance then eventually makes her leave mm-hmm. and tells Elizabeth and William, you know, I know that you are up to something. Just please confine your relationship to uh, the classroom. Yes, and specifically, he is especially upset about Elizabeth and Olive having a thing. Yes, he he is oddly okay with with William trying to pursue a sexual relationship with Olive, but he is he is disgusted. I think it's fair to say at the idea of Elizabeth and Olive having a relationship. Would you agree with me on that? Yeah. I was trying to look this up because now I'm really curious. So I'm looking up, I'm trying to figure out if we can place sort of how old William was at this time and maybe Elizabeth, if I can find out. Um, Because at the time that they kind of all meet Mm -hmm. and they start this fling. Olive. Olive is 22. 22. But at this point, both William and Elizabeth have been through law school. So they have to be at least in their 30s, I'd say. Right. 30s, early 40s. Trying to see if there's anything I can grab here. Well, he published that book in 1928, and that was shortly after they mm-hmm. met. So, and he was born in 93. 1893. 1893, yeah. So, 35, did I do that right? I'm terrible at math. Yeah, I think he's 35 when okay. he, around 35, maybe a little under 35. So, early yeah. 30s when he and Elizabeth meet Olive at 22. Yes. So there is a, I mean, there's a couple of power dynamics going on here. For one thing, uh, for one thing, Marston is her teacher. Yep. Which is ethically very dubious. And, um, and there's also the fact that there's this age gap. Like, both William and Elizabeth have a lot more experience when it comes to relationships than Olive does, because she was literally raised by nuns. <laughs> and... Though the movie sort of portrays Olive as sometimes being the most mature person. Yes. Yeah, you know, when it comes to sort of... Handling herself? Like, she very... Mo- maturity, I yeah. feel like. She moderates her behavior well, and yes. she's kind of in control of her emotions. Yes. She probably has, like, the highest emotional intelligence right. of the three of them, at least as portrayed in the movie. Right. And so the other thing, too, like, you mentioned the dynamic, the power dynamic between Professor Marston and Olive because, you know... Professor Marston is her professor, mm-hmm. teacher. But Elizabeth also has a little bit of power over her, and that's remember that she's asking for a letter of recommendation yes. from Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. So now, you know, she wants to have, obviously, you know, a good recommendation. So I think that there, there's even a little bit of that there. So there are dynamics at play, and that's something to keep in mind. And then... So yes, I would recommend to all the teachers out there, don't start relationships with your students. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> I'm sure that's... To, to all the college professors out there, don't do not do this. Or, or graduate... Any professor, higher level professor, don't do this. And any anybody who's in a teaching position, don't do this, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's just ethically very dubious. So they also end up having kids. And yes. Olive has, I believe, the first two or is the first one? I believe she has two kids i believe elizabeth also has has two two kids kids. right so an interesting thing that they don't really touch upon in the movie is that william and elizabeth legally adopt both of olive's children which again is sort of this unusual maneuver 
which I think is another sort of bit of evidence that there is a deep relationship between the three of them. But but yes, there there are four children, but they're they're raised to believe that so Olive's children are raised to believe that she is their mother and that her, the father is gone, essentially. And then Elizabeth's children are raised to believe that William and Elizabeth are their parents. So so we're seeing I mean we're seeing we're partially seeing like a I think a topic that's still like people in polyamorous communities are still discussing is like how do we do group parenting or co-parenting when there's more than just the biological father and mother involved which the movie kind of glosses over but these are like difficult decisions to try to to navigate like who's going to who's going to take care of the child at this point how are we going to raise the child does a does a co-parent who is not the biological mother or father have equal say as the biological mother and father? Like, these are questions that people are going to have to grapple with as Absolutely. polyamory, like, continues to to spread. And it's it's only going to get more complicated. Absolutely. I think also there are the repercussions that can happen for the kids. Yes. Which we see in this, you know, the kids are bullied. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, you know, I'm not sure how that would look like. I would like to think that we've come a long way. But, you know, there are kids who get bullied because their parents are gay still in this day and age. So, you know, having kids also, you know, and being polyamorous, especially if you're openly polyamorous. Yes. Can be risky for your children. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that we need to keep in mind. Also, there's, I mean, some people don't want to be open about their polyamory. So the question then becomes, like, how much are we going to try to hide this from our children? Right. And, you know, children, they get around. They find out things that their parents don't want to find, want them to find out about. So, you know, how much effort are you willing to try to put into that? And if you're willing to go to the point of, you know, lying about your relationship with this person who keeps on coming around the house like at what point does that does the truth need to be revealed because i feel like if you're living in a polyamorous relationship at some point your children are going to figure it out yeah i think that's just a reality that you have to accept and plan for how it's going to happen right and that's if you're bringing your partner around or if they're seeing the partner a lot or yeah you know but i think that there are some people that i know who are polyamorous and have kids but they like keep their kids they they don't bring the uh secondary or other partners home yes so the kids don't ever see don't ever know that's and that's another decision that you can you make. can you have to make yeah and i think it requires a lot of communication and as you said like polyamory pretty much boils down to yeah a, a couple of, of key ingredients a, a lot of polyamory boils down to good communication transparency and boundary setting yep and this is something if you are trying to do co-parenting this is something where you need a lot of good communication you need to understand like how different people communicate because people communicate in different ways and you know you need to be transparent about your motivations which means you have to understand your own motivations and you have to be clear on what the boundaries are Mm -hmm. like you know if you 
one boundary that leaps to mind is like who is going to be who is allowed to punish the child that is that is some responsibility right there right and there's a lot of different opinions about how punishment of children should happen so i think you know if you if you are contemplating you know being in a poly relationship and raising children in a co-parenting situation you have a lot to talk about absolutely So let's transition a little bit to a more kinky part of the movie. Oh, yeah. Which I love this scene. Of course, the rope scene, we hinted at it a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. It's really lovely, in my opinion. I didn't think the rope was particularly beautiful or well done. (laughs) But the scene, especially like, there's the rope teacher guy, right? Mm -hmm. He's explaining. I also wrote down the quote that he said that you said you really liked, which is fantasy is possibility. Yes, I did like that quote. He he's saying that in response to a question, I believe, like, why? Why, why do you do this? Right? Why do you do this? Or why does a person want to be hurt? And, he, you know, he's giving this long spiel about, you know, how love is pain and we hurt the ones that we love. Not OK. I just have to jump in here. This is not to condone abuse. Yes. Yes. This is very much consensual pain. Yes. And, you know, and while reality always disappoints us and hurts us and i'm not quoting this exactly you know but he he finishes off with like fantasy is possibility and i think that's a large reason why like people do kink like you can you can make certain implicit desires an explicit fantasy and you're in a community of people who are all sort of encouraging you know the expression of fantasy and possibility i think the other part of fantasy becoming possibility is that you are transgressing the norms of like what is okay Mm -hmm. to do with another person yeah you're sort of getting into that realm of pushing those boundaries uh, boundaries of society yeah so i really like the scene the scene where elizabeth then ends up tying olive i think it's well done this you can is, really see, actually, throughout the whole movie, you really see their... Their dynamic. Their dynamic. It's it's really lovely. Um, and it's not done in that way that you see a lot of movies build, like, that sort of relationship between two women for, like, the male gaze. It's yeah. very much not done in that way. Yeah, I think I think it's fair to say that that their relationship is, is trying to be portrayed as, like, authentic as possible. So there's, like, some flirting with each other. There are some... Arguing, too. There's some arguing with each other. And- some tension yeah i have this i wrote down this note of not showing polyamory as being sunshine and rainbows all the time i think there is a tendency within the polyamory community to show polyamory as being amazing all the time which i don't think is is true like polyamory takes a lot of work yes and it also it has its ups and downs just like any relationship model yeah and it's not always going to be there's that new, you know, when you're in that new relationship energy, you know, everything is awesome. Endorphins are flowing. You know, you can't imagine like ever being away from this person. And then, you know, that new relationship energy fades and, you know, suddenly that that quirk that you found so adorable, you know. Because it's kind of annoying. It's like, you know, he chews really loudly or, you know, she doesn't put the cap back on the toothpaste. <laughs> I remember once, G, that you said my optimism was charming. Yes. And I'm wondering, does it get annoying? This answer may be a little bit more complicated than you were looking for. Oh, dear. There are times when I get a little annoyed with your optimism. But 
it makes me happy to know that there are still optimistic people in the world. And I have this person, I'm in a relationship who is this, you know, beacon of beacon of optimism, which while I don't always agree with the optimism and one might get annoyed with the optimism sometimes, I'm really happy that there's at least one optimistic person in the world. All right, I'll take it. I'm going to be optimistic about that (laughs) answer. All right. So, yeah, something else we wanted to bring up, too, was that, uh, and I think this is the last thing that we're going to touch on, is that, you know, towards the end of the movie... Elizabeth basically tells Olive she doesn't even do anything because, like, Elizabeth is, like, working as a secretary. Yes. And William is making these comic books. Yes. And Olive, like, what the frick is she doing, right? Yeah. And it's like, well, she's been taking care of the kids in the house. Yeah, totally glossing over, like, the amount of work it takes to raise children and to tend to a household. Yeah. And this is something that I feel like is just a... An American cultural problem, like in America, in America, the culture does not value domestic work. It is viewed as being not real work, if that makes sense. It's really unfortunate, but it's another way that we devalue women. Yes, I feel like this is starting to change, but uh, I think there's still a long way to go about this topic. But yeah, the, I mean, this is a woman putting down another woman. For not doing enough, even though she is the one who is raising the children. And there's a nice little moment at the end of the movie where, you know, there's there's a point in the movie where the the triad breaks up essentially, and William and Elizabeth keep on going, and Olive separates, and she takes her two kids with her. Yes, and then she's still dropping them off there to so they can for the see weekend. Them. Yeah, and there's a point where like William essentially like tells his wife. We have to apologize, and we have to apologize sincerely, and we have to submit to Olive's authority. And there's a nice little empowering moment where, like, Olive says, you have to take the children on the weekend. You know, I work all, you know, I work hard all week, you know, trying to raise them and clean the household. Yeah. I just want a couple days so that I can, you know, go to the salon or read a book. And she wants a new stove. God damn it. Give her the new stove. And William's like, of course. You want a new stove? We'll get it for you. And it's a nice little sort of little empowering moment. It's not like a big moment in the movie, but it's a nice sort of little empowering moment. I think especially to see Elizabeth, because they both like end up kneeling right in front of her. Yeah, this is a a, a big moment for Elizabeth because this is like the first time that she is willing to submit. And she is a little bit reluctant at first. Oh, mega reluctant at first. But her love for Olive's eventually sort of overcomes overcomes her resistance to submitting because she really wants Olive back in their lives, Mm -hmm. Uh, which, you know, is a tender moment. It's It's a very great moment. So overall, I think this was a a great movie, and I think that it has some good insights for the feminist feminist movement. I think it has good insights for the polyamory Mm -hmm. uh, community, polyamorous community. I think it has good insights in terms of... You can see some Historical. of the origins of, yeah. of Wonder Woman. Origins, right. It's geeky, it's geeky, uh, and it's it's kinky, and it's polyamorous. Mm-hmm. Uh, Polyamorousy. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I, as a note, I, I think we said this in the beginning, but there, the, the granddaughter does dispute that yes. this is... So the movie states it's based on a true story. Yep. And the granddaughter and various friends of the family do dispute that this relationship between olive and elizabeth 
actually existed. But other sources and pretty reputable sources pretty much uphold this relationship. Yes. So it's important to bear that in mind. You know, sometimes Highwood doesn't always tell us the truth. But I think the important thing about this movie, to a certain extent, it doesn't really matter whether the relationship happened or not. Because I think the important thing about this movie is that it portrays a polyamorous relationship to the American zeitgeist in such a way that's not, it's portrayed Overall, it is positive in its portrayal, but does not make it seem like a magical relationship existence. It is portrayed with its ups and downs, and it's their tensions and resistances, and sometimes people's emo- you know people's emotions flip on a dime, and you know, something that they said they were cool with in the beginning suddenly becomes not cool when the actuality arrives. You know, there's a lot. I think if you're sort of just getting to polyamory, I think there's a lot you can learn about this move from this movie about sort of navigating those first steps into polyamory. And I think it's important that, uh, you know, that, that Americans are sort of slowly educated on this, that living in a polyamorous lifestyle is not abhorrent or disgusting, but it's also not magical. Just because you're in polyamory doesn't mean like all your relationship problems are solved. It means that you have to do a lot of work on your relationship, and which I think is true for any relationship. You know, you know, monogamous, polyamorous, you know, whatever's in between that, you have to work on it. And I th- I'm really glad that this movie exists for that reason. Yes, and I just really quick before we end, because I'm, I'm sorry that um, I'm delaying us a little bit here. But I wanted to just also mention, I'm trying to find a little bit more information on the movie itself which is written and directed by Angela Robinson. And I just also wanted to give her credit here, too, for this pretty amazing work that she's done. Yeah. So, yeah. It's time to do our sign-off. Our sign-off. We came up with a sign-off. Finally. Yes. All right. So, I'm G. And this is M. And don't be afraid to love how you love. Love what you love. And love who you love. We'll get better at that. Yeah, we'll we'll get better at that. If you'd like to get in touch with either myself or M, you can tweet us at KNP Podcast or email us at kinky.nerdy.poly at gmail.com. Got my mouse, I got my water. I got my podcasting partner. Podcasting partner. I love it. I feel like you should uh, have asked me to officially be your podcasting partner. That would have been cute. I'm sorry. You should have made it like a really big deal out in public, too. Oh, shit. <laughs> you want me to make it a really big deal? Yeah. Like, you know, get go to the, the sports ball game and... The sports ball game. Yeah, get mm. get us up on the ju- Jumbotron. Ew. <laughs> that would be a real big deal, though. Like, I'm surrounded by all these fans of sports ball. <laughs> while we're live so that everybody can watch us, would you be my podcasting partner? Of course. (laughs) I've been waiting for this moment my whole life.
I knew from the moment we, we met <laughs> that you were going to be <laughs> my podcasting partner. <sighs> that was emotional for me. Well, I'm glad. <laughs>